Now, sometimes it can be hard to see the point of church. I think particularly for young, pers- young people, you know, having the Lord's Supper every week and these prayer meetings and preaching the gospel and all this focus on eternity. Whenever there's life now, and you know, whenever you're young, life stretches out before you and it's full of real problems and there's real things we need to tackle such as climate change and war and refugees and the homeless and disease and death. And should we not be a bit more focused, you know, doing a bit more about those things? And in our passage today, actually, in Luke chapter 9, we will see Jesus and send out his disciples to heal the sick. And Jesus, later on in chapter 9, will feed the hungry. He'll do real practical things to help real people, right? Real focus on that. So should we not follow his example and do a bit more practical things? Now, you already are, by the sound of it, as a church, but more, you know? Let's look, Luke chapter 9, verses 1 to 6. Let's read that first. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever, you do, wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from, from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So I'm sure you noticed that they were sent to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. They were sent, they went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Both things together. Why was Jesus sending them out like this? This actually is a step change in Luke's gospel at this point. Until now, Jesus has demonstrated his power in many ways over demons and diseases, but he's done it all personally, and now he is actually sending, he's empowering his disciples. He gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sends them out in all directions to all these villages, So he's deliberately causing a stir in the whole region. And they were going out as his representatives. That's why they were to take nothing with them. They were to go vulnerable and dependent on the villages for hospitality. They were, in fact, forcing the, the villages into a decision. Do we accept these guys, these representatives of Jesus, or do we reject them? Do we take them in? Do we look after them? Do we feed them? Or do we kick them out with nowhere to stay? So hospitality was, of course, a huge part of the culture in those days. So to reject these vulnerable travelers was a big deal, a big decision. If they kicked them out, the disciples then were to shake the dust off their feet as a warning. It was like saying, are you sure? Okay, well, we're just going to remove all part. We want nothing to do with this village. We're getting rid of even the dust from this village. We don't want even that sticking to us because, you know, this is a huge decision you're making. You know, they were the representatives of Jesus. To reject Jesus was to reject God, was to stand in line for judgment, in danger of judgment. And these disciples were saying, are you sure? This was a solemn warning. Are you sure you know what you're doing? So you see how 
Jesus is cranking up the pressure, isn't he, in the whole area? He's, he's forcing everybody to make a decision. He's forcing all villages. You know, you've seen a lot at this stage. Now, decide, decide. Are you with me or against me? Everybody has to decide. Time is running out. Jesus had been doing miracles for three years, giving all of this evidence, and now it was almost time for him to leave. And we're actually nearing the turning point in Luke's gospel. It's in verse 51 of this chapter. It's a very significant verse in Luke's gospel. Remember it, 951, the turning point. And at that point, Jesus is going to start going towards Jerusalem for the last time. So this is all about evidence. This is not just about healing. <laughs> this is all about evidence. And healings and miracles in the Bible are not simply for the sake of helping people. You know, if Jesus was, had come to earth just to heal, he would have set up a clinic. He would have systematically brought everybody through it and healed everybody for the entire time. But that was not his main focus. He was doing something far more important. He was offering people his kingdom. And these disciples are sent around the country like divine salesmen. They're kingdom of God salesmen, right? Sent to every village all over the country. They're turning up at every village and they're offering a demonstration. This is the kingdom. This is what the kingdom can do. Do you want it? Yes or no? You know, a, a salesman comes to your house and, well, they used to, didn't they, years ago and show you a wee demo of like a vacuum cleaner? I don't know, right? This is what they're doing. They're casting out demons. They're healing the sick. They're not healing every sick. They're just giving a demo. This is what the kingdom is. Do you want it? There was, now, there was a cost, you know, just like the vacuum cleaner or whatever, there's a cost. They were proclaiming the kingdom of God. And so to accept them meant that God had to become their king. <laughs> That's what a kingdom is, isn't it? Jesus Christ had to become their king. That's the cost. Yes, there's all these benefits, but that's the cost. Jesus must be king. We're his representatives. Unfortunately, despite the very real evidence of what their king could do, Jesus would ultimately be rejected. As he will say later in this very chapter, the demo was interesting, but the cost was too high. So this passage doesn't apply directly to us today, does it? This was the unique point in Israel's history. The long-awaited Messiah had come. He had spent years offering evidence that that is exactly who he was, the Messiah. And now he was sending his representatives with further proof in order to get everyone's final decision. Will you have me or will you reject me? And Jesus was not a con man. He, this was a genuine offer to, to the nation of Israel. If this nation had received him as king, you know what he would have done? Healed all their diseases, removed all of Satan's power, fixed all of their problems. <laughs> this was a genuine demo of what he could do. His rejection and death were indeed prophesied, but, and, and in that sense they were inevitable, but that doesn't take away from the fact that he really was sincerely at this point in history offering himself to the nation as their king. And their rejection was their own free choice. They decided his offer was too good to be true, and they slammed his door in the face. They called Jesus a con man. 
Now, Luke points out the effect that all of these demonstrations then had on Christ, uh, uh, you know, these demonstrations had on the existing king. In the next couple of verses, in verses seven to nine, this is a man called King Herod. It says, now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. So because of all this fuss that was happening, many of the locals were asking, who is this man? Now notice they were not asking, who are these men, right? The disciples were doing a good job of representing their Lord. When they were saying, we're here on his behalf. This is not us doing these miracles. We're only, he's given us the power. We are here for him. This is a good tip for all of us who seek to help people in any way as a witness for Jesus. Make sure the credit runs backwards, right? To the one who, who sends us. So some thought that it was John the Baptist back from the dead. Some thought the ancient prophet Elijah had arisen from the dead because he was a prophet who was famous for his miracles. Some, some other prophet. But notice in, in all what they thought, what is the common thing in all that they thought? They all thought this must be somebody back from the dead. This must be an invasion from the other world. This must be some kind of supernatural person. And Herod was perplexed, and he was a bit disturbed because he had recently killed John the Baptist. He says, John, I beheaded. And if this was John the Baptist back from the dead, then suddenly Herod and his kingdom was under a great threat. He thought he could just kill anybody he wanted and get rid of his problems. But if his problems were going to come back from the dead... So this made him very disturbed and very interested to meet this person, to see who they were. And I think this is a really good, actually, impression that Christians in general and churches in general should give to this world. This world thinks once, you, once you're dead, that's the end. We should be given an impression that that is not the case, that there is more to life. And the, whenever they observe us, our behavior, and our churches, the only explanation should be that Jesus must have risen from the dead. When they see how we talk and live, people should conclude that there must be another world. Do you see how if we focus just on this world and its problems, as I stated maybe we should at the beginning, then we draw no attention to the world to come. We are missing the entire point of why Jesus sends us out into this world. He wants us to lift people's eyes from the mundane things of everyday life to realize that they were made for a greater purpose, to proclaim that heaven has already invaded this world once in the coming of Jesus Christ the first time, and it will do so again when he returns the second time. This is our primary message as a church, as Christians. I, I, have you heard any Christian leaders on TV recently? What were they talking about? What, did they leave you with any impression of another world at all? Maybe they're speaking about rising prices and the war. Any mention of Jesus coming back? Now, in fairness, 
the BBC or anybody else doesn't want to hear that, right? <laughs> but actually, that is no excuse. You know, some of my colleagues in work were actually amazed to learn that I actually believed Jesus was coming back to raise me from the dead. And they come from church backgrounds. They had never heard of it. I think we tend to leave that bit out because it's hard to believe, isn't it? It's hard to believe that there's another world. And in fact, in this chapter, one of the main problems is the disciples themselves, his representatives, the ones selling this, actually find it hard to believe. It just seems too good to be true. But it made other people, many other people, curious to know more. That's the point. It created this kind of wow <laughs> in the whole region. And at the end of this, there's this large crowd had gathered, and they came seeking, just like Herod was seeking to see Jesus. This whole crowd are coming seeking to see Jesus, to hear more. You know, they, they maybe didn't believe it in any way deeply, but they kind of began to hope it was maybe true. And people who were hurting and diseased and broken and lonely and afraid, through these miracles, they had their imaginations awakened, awakened that there could be a better world uh, with no more disease and death. And, and this, again, is a great tactic in our evangelism. You know, we, we, we should sometimes begin by making people wish it were true, even before trying to persuade them it is true. Make them wish it was true. Maybe there is, maybe this could be true. It says Jesus welcomed them. Isn't that wonderful? He spoke with them about the kingdom of God and performed more healings as further proof of what the kingdom of God would bring. But then, you know, the day began to wear away and the disciples decided to bring Jesus back down to earth. Right? In verse 12. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand men, plus women and children, and that means... And he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and made them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces. So the disciples basically tell the Lord to send these people home. Look, it's getting dark. It's getting late. And, you know, they felt the need to put a stop to all this dreaming about some utopia, filling people's heads full of airy, fairy future dreams. You know, they had to get their kids to bed. They're in the middle of nowhere, and there's nothing to eat. They basically told the Lord, look, we're having a lovely time, but we better finish, you know, wrap things up and get people back to the real world. They still didn't understand what Jesus was offering. So Jesus challenges them. You feed them. 5,000 people plus women and children. You know, the disciples had seen the Lord do many great miracles, but nothing on this scale. See, two small ideas. We too can have two. Our ideas are just too small of what, what the Bible is actually offering. 
Yes, Jesus can help us as individuals. He can get us through life, but solve the problems of this world, war and famine. So they assessed their situation. They had a look at their pitiful supplies, five loaves and two fish. They were going to have to cut those up real small. And they would have to, no, it wasn't going to work. They'd have to buy more food. They were in the middle of nowhere. The nearest shop is miles away. How much was that going to cost? They were, this is ridiculous. But Jesus just kept going. <laughs> like, and he says, right, get them all to sit down for dinner in groups of 50. And they're like, what? Okay, well, okay. Well, fair play. They didn't seem to argue. They just, they just did it. And Jesus took those tiny supplies, five loaves and two fish, and this is the key point. He looked up to heaven. Did you notice that? He looked up to heaven. That's the key phrase. He brought the powers of the other world right down into this world. And he fed that vast crowd. So much food that the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of real leftovers, real bread and real fish. It's not airy-fairy. Another demonstration, this time, especially for his disciples. He gave them a wee basket each, didn't he? For exactly what he is offering this world. To bring the kingdom of God, the powers of heaven, into everyday life. To solve hunger and pain, disease and death. These disciples, they knew the promises from the Old Testament about the Messiah and the coming kingdom, but it was hard for them to really believe them, literally. Like, it is hard, just like us, when faced with the realities of everyday life. You know, one of their prophets, a man called Isaiah, in chapter 2 of his prophecy, you know what he talks about? World peace. No more war. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? But it's hard to believe in chapter 25, Isaiah describes the coming kingdom like a feast of good things where the Lord will swallow up all hurt and pain, all that mocks our hopes and dreams, especially death. Let me read what Isaiah says to you here in 25 verses 6 to 8. On this mountain... See what Isaiah is saying? In this mountain, in this very earth, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. They knew that. <laughs> it's hard to believe it, though. And the Lord was giving them a, a taste of that feast. A taste of the world to come. To see if they wanted more. It's like getting a wee sample of something in the supermarket, isn't it? Do you want more? There's plenty more, but there is a cost. He must be king. That's the only condition. He must be king. Jesus says, you make me king, this is what I do. Jesus was offering them proof that Isaiah was a prophet, not a writer of fiction. This was some offer. But was it true 
Could they believe him? It all depends just who this Jesus is. And for the second time in this short section, we have this focus on this all-important question. Who is this man? Let's read from verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. So Jesus first asked his disciples what people are saying about him. And then most crucially, he asked them, what do you think? What do you really, really think? Who do you think I really am? This is the crunch question for everyone, every one of us as well. See, we will only take Jesus and his offer seriously if we really believe that he is God incarnate. You know, the crowds had got excited, all these miracles, but their opinion of him was far too small. Just a prophet, another prophet, come to offer more promises, more hopes, or is he? Is he the Messiah? The long-awaited fulfiller of all those prophecies. The one who's come to make it all come true. To bring the kingdom of God. This is what it comes down to for every one of us here this morning as well. Who do I really believe that Jesus Christ is? He asks all of us, who do you say that I am? You know, Christianity is really this simple. <laughs> this is Christianity. It comes down to this very question. It comes down to one man and who he is. If he is the son of God, then it's all going to come true. It has to. If he isn't, then let's quit all this airy-fairy talk and get back to the real world. We all have to decide. Not what the crowd thinks. Not what the church says. Not what my parents say. It's for all of us to decide. He asks us all, who do you say that I am? Now, Peter answers on behalf of all the disciples, they're Christ of God. And Christ means Messiah, the anointed one, the true eternal king chosen by God. God's king had finally arrived on planet earth and they were convinced, these, these 12 men were finally convinced. Maybe it was this last miracle that convinced them, I don't know. But this is a high point, isn't it? The disciples finally realized that Jesus is much more than any man, than any prophet. He is the hope of the nations. He is the Messiah. And I'm sure they were ready to go run right around all those villages again, weren't they? With even more renewed enthusiasm, like even better seals pitches, right? They were like, the Messiah has arrived after centuries of promises. It's all come true. What a time to be alive. What a privilege to be his representatives. Let's get this show on the road, right? And imagine their confusion then when the next thing he says is to keep quiet. Let's read verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. 
And the disciples must have been thinking, what kind of plan is this, right? If the Messiah has arrived, why not tell everybody? You know, and if the leaders of the nation, yeah, the elders and the chief priests are going to reject him, who cares? We'll get as many people as possible on side now. We will overthrow them. We will bring the kingdom. And he was saying, say nothing, guys. Their, their understanding of how the kingdom of God was going to come, was going to be established, was very limited. They were imagining probably, you know, a, a power struggle, another revolution in the history of this world's revolutions. But the kingdom of God is not just another kingdom. It is an invasion from the other world. The king hadn't come to overthrow Herod or the chief priests or the Romans. He had come to defeat death and set up an eternal kingdom. He hadn't come to make life a bit better and solve a few problems. He had come to make life perfect, right? And for that, he had to die and rise again. Notice the word in verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer. This is the only way that the kingdom can be established. This was his deliberate strategy. The only way that Christ could establish his kingdom was to let the rulers of this age kill him, reject him and kill him, and then rise again. To prove to everyone, including his disciples, that death is not the end, that there really is another world. To help everyone believe that his offer of an eternal paradise is not pie in the sky. His disciples find it all so hard to believe, even after this confession. They, they just did not, they could not believe it until when. What was it that finally convinced his disciples? What was the great turning point? The ultimate demonstration and proof is whenever they looked into the face of a man risen from the dead and they realized there is another world. All God's promises will come true. He says, this is the only way that I can finally establish my kingdom. Jesus will be rejected and he warns his disciples then that they can expect the same. In verse 23, and he said to them, to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So he tells them that the kingdom of God is a long way off. Guys, the king might have arrived. They were ready to run around telling everybody, but it's a long way off. They had to be rejected, die, rise, and then they would be rejected. It wouldn't be until he came again in great glory that the kingdom of God would be finally established on earth. They were not to expect life to be perfect anytime soon. They were to expect the very opposite, suffering and persecution. So one sense the kingdom was a long way off and another sense the king was already there. There he was, the king, and he was demanding absolute obedience. Well, in these verses, isn't it extreme? He demands they give away their lives in this world and follow him, even to death if necessary. He says, lose your life, give it away for my sake. 
He tells them not to be ashamed of him and his words. And this all hinges on the previous question of verse 20, who do you say that I am? If he is just a man, even a good man, even a prophet, then to give up your life for him is foolish. But if he is the eternal king, to give your life to him is common sense. If he really is the son of God who will return to this earth in great glory with the holy angels, then he is worth following even to the death. Why not give up a few years of imperfect life in this world in order to gain an eternity of infinite joy? We will lose all that we gain in this world anyway, even if we gain the whole world, he says. What a profits a man if he gains the whole world and loses himself? The only way to save anything, to have anything, is to invest your life in him and his kingdom. That's what he's saying. If he is the son of God, give him your life. If he isn't, then hang on to whatever you've got. Make the best of it because this is as good as it gets. This is the heart of Christianity. Who is Jesus Christ? It's easy to give an answer in Sunday school, the Son of God, but it's really hard to believe whenever we're suffering. Even though the disciples just confessed him to the Christ of God, when it came to the crunch, you know what would happen? They would all be ashamed of him. Most of them would abandon him, run for their lives. Peter, who just confessed him, would deny even knowing him. Christ knew they needed more evidence. Ultimately, it would take his death and resurrection to finally convince them that he was the Son of God. That's why he must suffer and die. Now, we know from church history that these disciples did eventually pay the ultimate price, martyrdom. And Christ demands the same of all of us, to give up our lives here in exchange for the life to come, to lose our life for his sake, to give up our time, our energy, our money in service to him and his kingdom, to stand loyal to him, unashamed of him, and of his words in a world that continues to reject him. So remember we asked at the start, what is the point of church, of all these, the Lord's Supper and all these things. You know what church is? Church is an outpost of heaven on earth. Church is an embassy of the kingdom of God. That's why we keep the Lord's Supper, because he commands it. To express our loyalty to our true king. That's why we gather to pray to him and worship him. That's why we proclaim his words in our preaching. Yeah, we should do a lot of good. Do all the good you can to everybody. Help people whenever and however we can because this world will have plenty of problems until Christ comes back. But we should do it all in the name of Jesus Christ as his representatives. We should make him the focus, proclaim the kingdom, point people beyond this life, beyond all problems, their problems, to the hope of a future where there will be no problems. We should invite people to give up their lives in this world and await true life in the world to come. You know, this world has lots of problems, but only Christ can fix it. It breaks our heart to see the famines, the war, the disease, the death. It, and, and the worst thing is it doesn't have to be this way. You know, Jesus came to fix it all. He demonstrated he could. He had the power to heal. He could free from Satan. He could feed the hungry. But this world said, no thanks. And continues to struggle with the same old things. 
But his very rejection became the means to his establishing his kingdom. His death and resurrection was the thing that finally convinced a few men, those few disciples, that he really was the Messiah. And God's promises really were true. And their testimony, and especially their willingness to suffer, was what began to convince many others, millions of people, right to this day, to give up their lives for the kingdom of God, to invest their futures in Jesus Christ as well. And we, are on the back, we stand on the back of that, and we are to join in with that same, that same message, that same agenda. And how do we do that? We can help by ensuring that our message isn't just focused on this world's problems, but it's lifting people's eyes and imaginations beyond this world to a better world to come, where Christ is king, where he will spread a feast for all nations, where he will swallow up death and wipe away every tear. And we can ensure that our lives back up what we are saying. When people look at us, at how we live, they, they need to see that we really do believe in another world. When they see us prepared to suffer out of loyalty to Christ, prepared to stand unashamed for him and his words, his exclusive claims, his teaching on sexuality and gender, when they see us giving up time, energy, and money for him and his kingdom, then people will see that we really do believe that he is coming back. So as we close, let's ask ourselves, is there a discernible difference between how we live and how a non-Christian lives. Could you tell from looking at my life that I really do believe in another world? If not, it's not just a matter of changing our behavior, it's coming back to that central question and letting him ask us once again, who do you say that I am? Because at the core, that's what it all comes down to. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for, for coming to this world. Lord, we thank you for your grace and patience with us all. Lord, this world suffers from many problems every single day. And at the core, it's because we have rejected you. And Lord, what an amazing God you are to come to this world and offer yourself once again and say, do you want me to fix all of those problems? And to take our answer once again, no. And yet, even through that rejection, to start asking the same question once again. Do you want me? And Lord, we know that you have come to each one of us even this morning and you're asking that very question. To each one of us, do you want me as your king? Who do you say that I am? Are you willing to get off the throne of your life and invite me on there to give up your autonomy, your rule of your own life and to give your life away to me? Lord, we will only do that if we really see who you are. We pray through your Holy Spirit that you would open our eyes, just as you opened the eyes of these disciples, to see that there is more to life, that there is a world beyond this one, that it has already invaded this world once and is coming again. We pray, Lord, that we would live for that coming, and we pray that you would help us to see these things more and more clearly as that day approaches, and we ask it in Jesus' name.